Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September the December, September. I just keep going backwards in it. December the 16th, 2015, episode 1695 of the Survival Podcast today. And uh, maybe I'm going back in, in time two days in a row now. I said November yesterday, and I skipped October and went to September today because it does seem kind of crazy that 2015 is almost over. How many of you really remember Y2K really well? Whether you, you bought into the hype or not, I just mean the, the, the year 2000 happening. That's uh, going to be 16 years. 16 years. We're about to hit 2016. Um. Do you realize how how long 16 years really is in our minds thinking forward? I'll put it to you this way. When another 16 years go by, not yet to be a genius to do this math, I think even a common core student could pull it off with maybe 27 steps. But when another 16 years go by, the year will be 2032. And I'll be one year shy of 60 years old. And you'll be whatever age you're going to be. And those years are going to come. And pass, no matter what. It's up to you what you do with them. It's up to you how you spend your dash. Today we're going to talk about how to spend that dash in the pursuit of freedom. And the advancement of freedom for yourself, for your children, for your community, and for people you'll never know that will be born generations from now. And we won't be doing it by voting. We won't be doing it by rioting in the streets or demonstrating in the streets. Today, we're not even going to talk that much about doing it through something like the planting of trees, which I think is one good way to improve the world for the future. Today, we're going to talk about it in individual action, something I've called proactive apathy, apathy toward the state. We're going to talk about 10 ways to actively live free in an unfree world. We'll get to that as soon as we're done with our housekeeping. First item, as always, is take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time when we vetted them for the sponsorship program. We checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. If you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard-line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy. Uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company 
when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of public at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription, you're a new subscriber, they have a deal for you in the member support brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, Sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I have a limit on laissez-faire banking. I have putting money into the curse jar, and I have clipping the public with a window tax. I'm going to read putting money into the curse jar. I find this very interesting, and I do find it to fit well with today's show. Puritan elements in England have been complaining about the crassness and general deterioration of society. Recently, the censorship laws have been allowed to elapse, so there's been a huge surge in what might be called inappropriate publications. Societies for the improvement of manners have sprung up lately. Members of these private societies are shocked by the easy profanity that common people engage in. Since the membership of these private societies are made up of public judges and government leadership, a law is passed to, public prof to punish public profanity. A fine of two pounds is levied for each offense, which is a little over $400 in today's money. My take by Alex Shrugged. I have sympathy for people who curse and for those that don't. I'm religious now, and I look religious, so people often apologize to me when they utter a profanity. I assure them that they need not feel embarrassed. I used to curse a lot when I was younger. In fact, I would curse so much that I would put curse words inside of words. Even after I was praying regularly, I would still curse. It became, it had become a bad habit, so I decided to work on it. I didn't beat myself up about it. I didn't create a curse jar. But when I would utter a curse word, I would simply back up and repeat the sentence without the curse word. I would explain to others I was trying to change a habit of years, and I was not expecting everyone else to do the same thing. People would relax and smile. Breaking a bad habit takes time. I'm amazingly better than I was, and what I what I feel better because I'm working at it honestly. What am I trying? Well, I am a religious man now, as such. I identified as one of God followers. I don't want to give God a bad name, so I work on it. That's the reason. That's fine for Alex. As many of you know have been listening to the show, that's not how I live my life. If I feel a word applies to a given subject, I use the word. I do very little censorship of my speech on this show. I don't say a couple things on this show in general, though one of them sneaks out from time to time. Generally not for me. It's generally from a guest and I, I generally let it go. That's the F word. The other thing I don't say is GD or God followed by the word damn immediately following one word after the other. And I, I don't do that because I realize it really does offend some people. And that even though you're absolutely wrong as to why it offends you, because it's not taking the Lord's name in vain, and I could give you a religious sermon on this, it's how people feel, and it's just not necessary. And it's not a term that I generally use a lot anyway, so I'm really not altering myself. But here's how I feel about this. 
Who decides? Who decides that shit's a bad word? Who decides that shit's a bad word, but excrement isn't? Or crap's okay. Rather, you not say it that way, but it's okay. But you can't say the S word, but, but, but poop's okay. See, this is about control to me. This is about control to me. If you'll notice in religious texts where it talks about speaking profanely, it doesn't speak about words. It speaks about a combination of words conveying things that are quite profane, rather than the individual word itself being profane. I could say some incredibly vulgar things without using a single word that is prohibited, let's say, on daytime television or even PBS. I could say incredibly vulgar things using all words that if they were used separately and independently would be okay in a G-rated Disney movie. But yet the idea that it conveys could be quite profane and vulgar. When we've allowed the concept that the word itself is wrong, rather than what it's conveying, we're letting other people define for us what language is. Now, if you're someone like Alex and you understand how the public in general perceives things and you choose to act this way because you're trying to do a good job of representing your faith and your God, I respect that. I appreciate that. If you just choose not to curse, I respect that and I appreciate that. But if the only reason you're not doing it is because somebody else told you it was wrong, and you don't really understand what makes it wrong other than those are words on a list we don't say, what you're actually doing is being controlled by others. And what I would like to point out here, As the government let these laws lapse, there was no need for a new law. But the people that got together in their private little institutions to improve things, to uh, to set up what do they call societies for manners, because they couldn't convey that their ideas were valid, ended up turning once again to the force of what? The state. And using the state to enforce their will upon others. See, here's my view. If your idea is really that good, You don't require force to spread it. My take by Jack Spirico. And that indeed will fit well with today's show. Next up, real quick, let me remind you about the Member Support Brigade. If you join the Member Support Brigade, you can help me with help me by supporting the work that I do and get great discounts on a lot of things you're probably buying. Anyway, you can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. Uh, and with that, let's go ahead and get right into it uh, and talk about today's Uh, subject, which is, again, living free in an unfree world. And what we're really talking about today, you can call it a couple different things. You can call it voluntarism. You can call it anarchy. Um, you can call it living free. I, I chose not to call it anarchy in the subject line of the of today's show so that it wouldn't turn people off who otherwise might give a listen, give it a shot. But since the show really is about what I'm considering active anarchy, um, I want people to actually understand what anarchy is. If you've never heard me talk about it before, I've never heard a modern anarchist, an enlightened anarchist discuss it. Anarchy is not spoiled young adult children living at home in parents' basements, listening to thrash music, and playing games while wearing a black t-shirt with an A on it. That, that's not anarchism. Anarchism is not burning down buildings or demonstrating in streets or being a nonconformist by getting the same tattoo that 5,000 other people have. It isn't hating everyone who is a cop or works for the system while you yourself take advantage of the same system every day. It, to be blunt, isn't even dominantly a political view. It is more an ethics-based view, and that ethics-based view ends up then driving your personal political philosophy. 
The ethics I'm talking about here are things like a firm belief that coercion, theft, and any force outside of defensive force is wrong. All the time, period, the end. That's, that's just the way ethics and morality work out. To use force on another person or coercion on another person to make them participate in activities they do not wish to partake in or to deprive them of their property or to deprive them of their freedoms is wrong all the time, 100% of the time. And if you, at your core, if, if you'll shelve the concept, well, it can't work, just let that go for now and, and think more along the lines of well, what if it could. Do you personally feel that it is wrong to use coercion, theft, and force outside of defensive force. Do, do you believe that? And if you do, then at the core, at the heart of your being, you are an anarchist. Because that's what anarchy is really all about. It is not about changing the government. It is not about what other people do. It is about what you do and how you do your best to live your life based on your own morality. And to do this, you have to accept some certain things. Society is currently a bunch of spoiled children. And they're not ready to step up overall and be as moral as your ideals are. Because you may not be able to be that moral yet yourself. But at least your ideals are there. You also have to accept that our way will not be the dominant way in our lifetimes. That we are not going to change the political spectrum to the state of anarchy, what I would call most people, a descent to anarchy. I'd call it an ascent to anarchy. It is the most moral way to live that humans have ever thought of. To, to allow others to exist as they choose, so long as you can exist as you choose, with one guiding rule, non-aggression. You can't, you can't force anybody else to do anything either. You can't steal from anybody else. You can't take from anybody else. You can't enforce your will on somebody else. You have to spread your ideas by their validity. Now, again, whether you think it can work or not, this is about morality. Most of us that follow a religious faith have certain tenets of that religion that we claim to adhere to, and yet we fall short of them all the time. And then, depending on your faith, you seek different ways of atoning for those things. But it doesn't take away your belief that that's the right way to live. Well, I don't think no matter what your religious belief is, if you are actually a moral person, you could have conflict with the concept that we shouldn't take from others, that we shouldn't force our will upon others, that we should ever use force on another person unless it's defensive force. To do this, we have to think seven, eight generations out. We live accepting the interactive edge we must tolerate with the state. However... Uh, we adapt and we worry first about what we do, how we handle conflict, what positive change we can make before we worry one bit about what anybody else does, what anybody else thinks, or what anybody else doesn't do. This show I'm doing today is actually based on an article I'll be releasing around the first of the year. I feel that an article on this subject will really reach a lot of people who don't normally listen to podcasts. But I also wanted to share this with you guys before the year ends. I think many of you will be surprised to learn you may have actually been practicing anarchy for quite a while without even knowing it. In fact, many of you in this very audience are far more of a real anarchist than many people who claim to be anarchists. Because many people that claim to be anarchists aren't actually doing anything. Many of them aren't doing any of the things that we're going to talk about today. These ten things you can do. And many of you are going to be doing five or more just because it makes sense. 
And when I give you the other five, you might say, you know what? I'm going to do those two. First of all, though, I want to talk about some, some quick concepts as we go into these. First of all, what is freedom? What is freedom? To me, freedom is the ability to pursue my passions, my dreams, my goals, to have the ability to go out and work with anybody that wants to work with me, to be able to help anybody that I want to, and to not have my property taken from me, to not be interfered with when I'm working with someone who wants to be with me. When I have a voluntary thing going on with another human being, do not have any third party come in and go, you guys can't do that. If we both agree to it, if neither one of us has taken the property of another, and if we're not hurting any other person, then we should be left alone. That's what freedom is to me. And that's what the real goal of anarchy is. Anarchy, again, is not a political system. It's actually an anti-political system. It's an ethics-based system that simply says we should all have that basic freedom and right. And that as long as we're using the force of the state to take from others, it's going to be really tempting to be generous with other people's stuff. And you see this all the time with especially the young liberal generation. They're, they're more than willing to be generous with other people's stuff. But ask them to start giving up what they have. They're not real keen on it. And we also have to be honest again about the limitations for anarchists right now. We're not going to take over. We, we the, the biggest limitation that, that anarchy has is, is the greatest thing about it. We are not able to use force. Every other political philosophy uses force in the end. Hold on. No, Jack, what about libertarianism? Even libertarianism. Because if libertarianism results in passing laws... The people that are forced to obey those laws, who don't want to obey those laws, are now being coerced and now being used, being forced by a much smaller state to still do those things. Now, the truth is, libertarianism is much closer to anarchism than a lot of kind of asshole purist anarchists want to admit. It really is on the same path. I think where the disconnect is, is libertarianism continues most of the time to seek a political solution. We'll get libertarians elected into the government. And, and, and realizing that's like throwing good money after bad in a, in a bad business investment. The, the system is designed that if you do take a libertarian and put them into government, it either, they're either destroyed, co-opted, or rendered ineffective. It, a perfect example of this is Ron Paul. Everything positive that Ron Paul really did for freedom and liberty and libertarianism was done outside of the halls of government. He literally got nothing accomplished inside government. He, he was un, unable to obstruct anything, and he was unable to get anything done. And he said that in his own kind of signing off as a congressman speech when he decided to leave. So even Ron Paul, who, who didn't get co-opted or destroyed, didn't get anything done. Anarchists simply say, well, we gotta, we gotta figure out this interactive edge thing and, and deal with this on our own. And that interactive edge is all the places that it would be nice to not use the state's roads, for instance, because that's the one, my roads, who'd build my roads, okay? It, it, it would be nice if we had a society where there was actually an option. If we could actually figure out what the option might be, you know? Um, but that doesn't exist. That doesn't, so that, that's a perfect example. And unlike a lot of people who call themselves anarchists, 
I, I'm completely willing for the person that can't get over how would we build roads and schools to say, well, schools are going to go the way of the dinosaur anyway, so I don't care. So that's fine, because all the schools are going to be online in another 20 years, so whatever. No, I'm not worried about that. But as far as roads, if the only thing our government did was build roads and bridges and overpasses and seated transportation capability, I'd be pretty happy. That's way more and way further than I expect to see happen in this movement in my lifetime. That's so far beyond what I expect that I would be over the moon happy that we'd gotten that far. If I, if I died an old man and that was the last thing government was doing, was seeing, I'll even give you seeing the common defense, seeing the common defense build roads. Is, is it perfect? Hell no, but I'll, I'll take better, and that's a hell of a lot better. And before I get into what we can do as anarchists, I want to talk about the concept of better. There's no doubt, if you look at the history segments, over the last 2,000 years, that for the average person, when it comes to freedom, things have gotten better. They've gotten better and better and better. And none of those changes occurred because people worked in systems. Not a single one. Every major advancement toward liberty was literally rendering an old system of rule obsolete and replacing it with a completely new one. And then that new one evolving to its limits, beginning to turn back onto itself toward tyranny, and then being wrested away from those in control and a new system being founded. If you, if you look at monarchies going to republics, for instance, that's how a tremendous amount of liberty we have today was created. And this can be a trap. Like Admiral Akbar, right? It's a trap, right? It, it can be. Because what, what the defenders of modern government say is, well, look how it used to be. Okay, that doesn't mean we're as good as we can be. And the danger is that every time a system of government changes through insurrection and revolution, it's a roll of the dice as to whether you're actually going to go forward or in many times regress to less liberty and less freedom. For instance, there were, re there were revolutions that led to people like Stalin and Hitler and Mussolini taking power. Okay? Um, and they were all actually democratic revolutions, just saying. Anyway, so how do we actually let all of that go and say to ourselves, yeah, we can actually be anarchists. We can actually do stuff that makes us anarchists. Well, here's my ten steps. Number one is for you to write your contracts and dealing with other people in ways that exclude the state. Just write the state out. In all my contracts, I write them to require first private non-binding arbitration by a mutually agreed upon third party. I do this for a guy putting a roof on my house or a true business partnership. Should the non-binding arbitration fail, binding, but private arbitration is to be sought next, The state's only involved if either party fails to comply with the arbitration. While I've been to arbitration proceedings, not once has the state ever been needed to resolve a conflict. In fact, I've never had to go past a non-binding arbitration. I've never actually been to a binding arbitrator. It's amazing what a truly neutral third party can do when they're charged with finding a mutual solution to a conflict. Especially when that party has no real authority and has to earn buy-in from both sides. We call that diplomacy. It's how we should actually be resolving our conflicts. When we resolve our conflicts inside the state, what we do is we go to somebody with absolute authority 
to render a decision, someone's right and someone's wrong. And by its very nature, that means someone loses. In these situations where there's conflict that needs to be resolved, both parties should come away feeling as justified as possible given their disagreement. And when you go talk to a third party who does not have the authority to side with one of you, what happens is both of you plead your case, and that third party is genuinely looking for a solution. And when that solution is presented back to you, both sides generally realize there's some part of this that I've been unreasonable about. And since I've been unreasonable about it, then maybe I can give a little, and maybe they can give a little. And when you come back together to discuss it further, it's almost always the case that a resolution is possible. Or you realize something. I want money. They don't have it. They're not going to have it. Even if I sue them and get a judgment, all I'm going to get is a lien on their house and destroy their life. How can we figure out a way to make this, this right? That restitution can be tendered over time in an agreeable way that works between both parties with a clear understanding and get another contract for that with the same type of arbitration proceedings. This actually works. And it works a hell of a lot better than the state does. And I would tell you parents that ever have discrepancies over child custody, you better do that. If you don't want to destroy your family, do not, do not, do not, for the love of God, you parents that sue each other for custodial rights in the state's freaking court, Honestly, those of you who initiate that action don't deserve to be parents. And I'll give you an out. You're too ignorant of how bad that system is to be blamed for it. You don't know. I dare any parent, and every parent, every person that ever plans on being a parent, please look up a movie and watch it for me. It's called Divorce Corp. I'll put a link to the trailer in today's show notes as well as a uh, link to the actual website where you can buy the film. I think if you're thinking about getting married, you and your prospective partner need to sit down and watch this movie. You need to prepare yourself to never, ever, ever put your children in the state's hands. Because if you can't resolve your differences, you need to just swallow them when it comes to taking care of your kids. If you watch Divorce Corp, it'll make you sick. And those of you who don't have kids, to understand what I just gave you, about conflict resolution, watch this anyway. Because this is just one place where it's particularly sadistic. But this is how the U.S. court systems work. The U.S. court systems do not work to resolve conflict. They work to side with one side, which always creates some level of victimhood in the whole situation. And usually it results in a lot of loss of wealth, time, and energy that could be better spent. So step one, write your own damn contracts. Please. And again, you parents, don't go to the state. Find third-party arbitration, non-binding. Non-binding arbitration is the best type of arbitration you can get because they don't give a damn about who's right and wrong. They give a damn about the best possible solution, and they have to earn common respect from both of you. Again, diplomacy. Number two is kind of in the same vein. Always try to resolve any conflicts without involving the state. This is anytime it's not, you know, something that's a formal agreement. It's not a marriage. It's not a business partnership. It's not a contract to do work. We're talking about neighbors who have differences. When you have that, approach your neighbors who are doing something you don't like as nicely as possible. See if you can find a way to mutually agree to a solution. Do the same if you realize a neighbor has a problem with something you're doing. Uh, it, it sucks that most of the time today, 
you know, the way we find out a neighbor's upset is the police are at our door, code enforcement's at our door. But if you know that something's rubbing your neighbor the wrong, go talk to them, explain it, ask them what you can do to make it more agreeable with them. Be proactive. Take a step, step, take a hint from the first step. And if you need to, get a neutral third party. About a third neighbor that doesn't really love or hate either one of you guys. Or just somebody that both of you respect. And say, hey, what do you think we should do? We're, we're at an impasse here. And, and, and then, you know, in such efforts, when you're trying to resolve a conflict, never demand the other side comply with everything you want. That, that's a guaranteed way to polarize the other side and end up in court or end up with a cop at your door or something like that. What we need to do is explain your concerns, ask them if they have any ideas for a solution. That's actually the best way to be diplomatic. What do you think we can do about this? Well, you can just stop. Okay, I'm not going to just not do this, but is there a way I could do it that's less annoying to you or less of a problem for you? Or what particularly about it bothers you? How can I adjust what I'm doing to make you more comfortable? That puts the solution in their hands, and they feel like they're in control versus having control wrested away from them. Don't expect a solution right away when you do this. You're, you know, And unless they're like going to burn down your house or kill somebody or blow something up, Just be okay with both sides sleeping on it, not having a resolution right away. Often if a day, day or two goes by and you guys understand each other and think about it, you can come back together and both go, you know what, it's not that big a deal. I, I understand now what you're doing and why you're doing it. Or, you know what, could you do this? Could you, you move what you're doing to the other side of the lot or the back of the lot or, or whatever? Or, you know, could you, could you, conf you know, at a certain time of day, could you cease a certain activity or something like that? And, and all of a sudden the problem goes away. And again, more efficient than the state. Why are these two things anarchy? Because it doesn't, it's not what you normally think of as anarchy. Because they eliminate the state's role. So that's what anarchists are trying to do. We're not trying to change the state. We're trying to, to, to eliminate the state's role. These are both forms of apathy. It's not apathy towards your life. It's not apathy toward other individuals. It's not even apathy towards society. It's apathy for, to, to the state. Because the state would like to say, if you have a neighbor breaking a code, call us and we'll come fix it. I don't need you. Go away. Bye-bye now. I, we're grown adults. We can talk to each other. If you have a, a problem in your business and somebody broke the contract, then you can sue them in our court. No, go away. I don't need you. See, apathy is so misunderstood. Apathy is not a broad brush sometimes. Sometimes apathy is a very narrow stroke. In this case, it's pretty broad, but it's not all-encompassing. We think of apathetic as a person sits around and does nothing. But apathy describes an individual sector or component, not your whole life. There's plenty of people who are apathetic politically, but very active in voluntary, voluntary uh, efforts, right? There's plenty of people who are apathetic toward football, right? I like the NFL. I like watching the Steelers get better every week. It makes me feel good. You don't care. It doesn't mean you're an apathetic person. It means you're apathetic toward football. What I'm trying to be is apathetic toward the state wherever I can, So three, I can't be apathetic to the state all the time. Sometimes I have to be proactive in my apathy against my apathy. That sounds like double speak, but here's what I mean. Number three is create or find a small nonprofit that truly does things you want done and gives to those you find worthy. Donate money to this nonprofit and deny the state the right to decide what to do with your money. 
Don't be dumb and do what most people do and write checks to things like the Red Cross. All you do that way is pay for a few gallons of CEO jet fuel. I mean, that's really what you're doing. When you, you write your $50 check to the Red Cross, I guess you got the guy a couple gallons of jet fuel to fly around in his G5. Do what rich people do. Join up with a few other people, create your own nonprofit, and fund it. And then have full control over who you give to and the charter your nonprofit must follow. One warning here. Never call it your nonprofit in any communications with the state or publicly. It's simply a nonprofit that you help to found. Oh, and take this step only after you have profits to dispose of. Otherwise, you're nothing but a professional beggar. A nonprofit without a profitable entity somewhere attached to it is a professional begging society. But the smartest way to distance yourself is create a nonprofit, set up a board of directors to run it that are sympathetic to the things you want done, and then don't even be an nothing more than an advisor to the board. You don't have any authority or any control. Now you can take all of the excess profits that you don't want to pay taxes on and can't find some way to invest them back into your business right now. You donate them to your nonprofit. And if there's a family down the road who just had a fire, instead of writing a check to the Red Cross that might show up and donate to them later, you can go to your, your board and say, I think we should help this person. And they can say, we don't have a lot of money in the kitty right now. Well, uh, I just wrote a check to the Treasury for 2000 bucks. Maybe you can go help those people with the money. See what I'm saying? This is what rich people do. This is what giant corporations do. Do you think Bill the Gates Foundation is really because Bill Gates is such a wonderful guy? And, and, and he moves so much of his billions in there because he's just a wonderful guy. You can make your own judgments about whether Bill Gates is a wonderful guy or not, but taking those billions of dollars, putting them inside the nonprofit, allowing that, that, that money to sit there, and acute interest at those volumes alone, and yet distribute all of the interest as charity takes the ability of the government to tax all of that money away. They can't tax any of it. It's all gone. And every time you write a check to it up to the limits, it's not taxable. So this is the problem. Government wants to redistribute your wealth. Most people who have wealth don't actually mind having some of their wealth distributed. They just want 100% control over how and where it goes. This is how you do that. And you might think, I'm not big enough to do that. You and 10 of your buddies are. You and 10 of your buddies are. You absolutely are. And not all of them need to be, you know, as in his founders, and not all of them need to be in his board members and what have you. You can actually maybe set up, if you have a big enough group, you can set up two with two different charters and completely divorce the influence and control on the interior from the main contributors. That way you're completely clean. But both are being run to the charters and the way that people see fit. Now there's legalities here and things you have to do that are a little bit complicated. So if you can't actually pull that off, or you don't want to pull that off, then search really hard for a small local nonprofit that you can go down to and look at, not just because they're a food bank or a shelter or whatever. Go see who they're actually helping. And when you go, this group is doing exactly what I want. Make them your nonprofit of choice. Don't look for the billion-dollar nonprofit with a website. Look for the small nonprofit that you can build a website for because they don't even have one. Or there's a sucky. But you really believe in what they're doing. And deny the state the ability to tax your money. Next, we just did a big show on this. We did a huge one yesterday on follow-up. Make your own alcohol. Now, this is for drinkers only, of course, but if you drink, 
Stop giving the state so much in taxes. This does three things. First, it's a skill. The more skills you have, the less dependent you are. Two, it saves money. The more money you have, the more good things you can do for the things you believe in. Third, it denies the state tax revenue and it's completely legal, by the way. So I can't, I'm not going to tell you exactly how to do this in this article, but let me say you can make good hard cider for about eight bucks a gallon using store-bought apple juice, a balloon, and a bit of sugar, and a dollar's worth of yeast. The only thing in that list subject to taxes is the balloon, and you can even make cider right in the bottle it comes in. There's a podcast that I did in the past that tells you how to do that, and the one I did yesterday has all kinds of follow-up on it. And I would say things like, if you're a smoker, please quit smoking. That's why I didn't put it in there, because I'm so against smoking, but... If you're going to do it, learn to grow your own tobacco, buy loose tobacco, assemble your own cigarettes, do anything you can to cut down taxes. In fact, anywhere that there is what you would call a sin tax, if there's a way around it, try to use that way around it. Five, do business in ways that do not use the state's money whenever practical. Use barter, use Bitcoin, use silver, and frankly, use anything you and others agree upon as currency. Stop listening to crybaby crap like this day's going to crash the internet and render Bitcoin useless. Use what we have while we have it, period. The state may also declare martial law someday and block a road, but you're going to drive on it today anyway, right? The state's real power is in its ability to coin money, tax the same, and in debt its citizens. I do plenty of business in Federal Reserve notes. For now, it's a necessary evil. But I use other methods whenever ever possible. The mental shift alone by doing this is massive. Nothing the state does has greater control than convincing people that only it can, quote, create money, end quote. Shatter this illusion even one time. Everything changes for you. The first time you exchange value for value and completely exclude the state from it. You don't use cash. You don't use checks. You don't use credit card. The two of you use something of, of value. We do this with the barter blankets at my events where people just trade two items. But, you know, if you go over and fix a guy's shed and he comes over and fixes your bathroom because he's good at plumbing and you're good at carpentry, that's kind of the same thing. If the guy that can fix your shed says, yeah, I'll do it for parts plus a hundred bucks. Well, how about I give you X amount of Bitcoin and pay for the parts in cash? I'm just saying. You know, or, hey, would you take a few pieces of silver for doing that and I'll buy the parts for cash? There's always ways, and everything that you can do that with that makes sense, that, that you can avoid the interactive edge and not do it out of spite. There's, I mean, people would say, well, Jack, why don't you take 100% Bitcoin? Well, because a lot of my audience doesn't use it uh, because I have to pay bills in dollars right now. So, Remember, we advance anarchism by proving it works. And if we have to incrementally advance it by proving it works in small segments until it's further accepted, then we'll do just that. So that's what things like Bitcoin are. But I'm not even sure that Bitcoin is the way forward. I love Bitcoin. I think that the technology is, it, we've only scratched a tiny mouse fart of the capability of Bitcoin technology. But I'm not so sure that even that specific technology is the way forward. There are still some things that inherently enable the state to put their hooks into Bitcoin and Bitcoin-like technology. There may be an advancement further. There may be three or four more levels of advancement before we find the thing that everybody looks at it and says, that idea is so strong, there needs to be no force to convince me to go along with it wholesale. 
Because again, that's our goal here. And we're not going to get there tomorrow. We're not going to get there by the next election. But here's the good news. Neither are they. Your next election in this country isn't going to change the square root of F all. It isn't. But what you do in your own backyard will change the square root of F all for you. Because it will take the F out. And the only way to change that equation, which I call the Franklin algorithm, okay, is to use the Spirco compensation. So the square root of F all, you know what F means. Okay, that's the Franklin algorithm. The, 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 the spherical compensation factor is to multiply the result by the negative 40 gaff factor. Okay? Gaff is give an F factor. So by taking all of their mumbo jumbo and crap and BS and saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go negative 40 in my lack of caring about what they're doing and focus only on what I actually influence, that's how you change that equation. You basically cancel it out. One side cancels the other, and you're left only with relevant factors. When you do business and you eliminate the state, as small as it might seem to you, the, the, the difference is not that you bartering apricots for figs and not putting it down on your tax form like you're technically supposed to do that they'll never be able to prove anyway, uh, and, and just doing it deprives the IRS of uh, 45 cents. Okay, in that particular transaction. That's not going to make a difference. That's not a rounding error. And the pessimist will point that out. The pessimist is absolutely right. They don't get it. They don't get it. What you've just done is formed a relationship that will continue to exist in a value-for-value value basis with an individual who now sees you as a source of value, who you now see as a source of value, who you now realize that you can do business with without the state's money. And that's... That's why the state doesn't like it. If they actually were worried about the 45 cents in income tax, they would do something to try to address it, but they don't. Other than put this is how, if you're that honest with us and you want to pay tax on your figs, here's how you do that. This is how you work that out, right? It's in the code, but, uh, and I don't, if you want to ever tell me you got audited by the IRS and you got busted for exchanging figs for apricots or something like that, Go ahead and write me because I, I want to know about it. Because I want to know, I want to know how that turned out. I want to know how they proved it or whatever. I, I really do. That's that's not the problem. The problem, in fact, the IRS, the average IRS agent, I, I would believe, goes, yeah, I don't, I don't have time to to give a shit about that. And the average IRS agent, to be fair, to the IRS is just doing his job like everybody else, and they do their best to try to be fair within the law, whether the law is fair or not. That's their job. Okay. Um. And they have certain things that they just go, I'm not going to mess with that. That's that's just not really what I'm here to do. Selective enforcement, another check on power. Okay, And we, we can't view the IRS even itself as the problem. It's the government that created something like the IRS that gave it all the power that it has. Without the force of government, the IRS would be completely benevolent and totally ineffective. Other than if their ideas were really good about what to do, we might actually send them money anyway. But it's only the force of the state that makes all of these government organizations even a problem. Even a problem. Um, next, six, start a business. Now, yes, if you start a business, you're going to pay taxes that employees do not pay. And you're going to pay for permits and fees. Right now, though, if you're an employee, you're paying them already. You just have no idea that you are. Trust me, when I employed people in the past, I considered their full 
burden cost to me when negotiating a wage with them. When I was doing estimates for companies so that I could do sales and saying, here's how much we're going to charge you, Mr. Customer, to do the job, I had a burden labor rate for my employees right in there, and none of them made close to it. Most of them had no idea how much they cost me or when I was still employing myself, the company. I had, I had techs making $14 an hour with a burden labor rate of $40 an hour. Okay? You don't think that's factored in when somebody hires you, you're, you're out of your mind. Besides, when you run a business, the bigger thing is you become very skilled at avoiding any and all state regulations, hurdles, costs, etc. that you can. You don't avoid them all, but you get really good at working around, over, and through the ones that you can do that with. Every successful business does this. This is not cheating. It's working the system. The big companies wrote all the laws through their highly paid lobbyists. That's how they get them in place. When they put in all the loopholes for themselves, uh, when they did that, right? So you can, you can use these loopholes too. It's simply on how you structure things. Now look, as I always say, CPA and tax attorney. Jack, what business entity should I? CPA and tax attorney. Jack, is this deductible? CPA and tax attorney, right? I refuse to even answer questions like that because I don't know. You're never going to give me all the detail I really need. I don't know your local ordinances, jurisdictions, etc. So CPA and tax attorney, right? And make sure you do that when you set up your business, determine your deductions, etc. But let me put it bluntly in a broad stroke. If you're an employee... What you do is you earn money, you pay tax, and then you can spend or save or invest what's left. As a business owner, I earn money. I spend as much as I can inside the business. I reinvest as much as I can into the business. Okay. I save as much as I can inside the business by converting cash into other business assets that are still liquid for me if I needed to convert them back to cash, but yet are assets in the business that I can now depreciate. Okay, whatever's left, I then pay taxes on, and whatever's left after that, I spend personally. That's how you run a business, and that's how a business in this country is designed to be run. It's not cheating, it's working the system. Again, but what you do, what you do is you earn, pay taxes, and you get the, the scraps that are left over. That's why owning a business and structuring it right is so powerful. It's not just about the money you can make. For many of you that are acting as consultants right now, etc., you could set up a company. You could set up an S-Corp or an LLC. Which one? CPA and tax attorney, okay? And just have your employers bill your company. In fact, if you want to stay a contractor, that's going to be the smartest way to do it because the government's doing everything it can to eliminate the ability for highly paid contractors to work directly for companies. But when it's corporation to corporation, even a corporation of one, it gets around so much of the bullshit. Absolutely so much of the bullshit. And it's not that hard. When I was working with Neil at Data Workforce, we were putting contractors all over the world, and about 10 to 15% of our contractors did that. The, the, the money was paid to their company versus them. It was one more box to tick and one more form for us to file, and that we did it once when they were set up that way, and that's all that it was. You can do that too. And there's so much power in that. The next is I want you to form a group. Of your own, locally. And I want you to make it an anarchist group. But I don't want you to call it one. Because I want all kinds of people in it that don't know that they're being anarchists. That's how you spread ideas. By proving their validity. What I want you to form a group to do, though, is to get something done on a regular basis. 
I don't care if it's going downtown and cleaning up graffiti. I don't care if it's feeding old people. And if you're lucky enough to have active anarchists, by all means, form an actual labeled anarchist group and go do something like that. But remember, any self-organized, self-directed group based on voluntary association is an anarchy. If you have a group of guys that go out once a week and discuss football and drink beer at a bar, that group is an anarchy. It's not a very productive anarchy, but it's an anarchy. Nobody made you do it. Nobody made you do it. Nobody coerced you into do it. If somebody leaves, you guys might be like, ah, oh, Tom, come on, hang out with us on Thursdays. It's great. But if Tom gets a girlfriend and doesn't really want to hang out every Thursday anymore and watch football and drink beer and watch Thursday Night Football or whatever it is, then you know what? Tom leaves. You don't go after him. You don't put a gun to his head and bring him back. To get the group started in the first place, you have to convince people that your idea is valid. Form a group like that. I mean, form a group that paints homes for old people, teaches kids to do bushcrafting skills, teaches people to use firearms safely, teaches people how to raise and butcher livestock, cooks meals for the community once a month, grows community gardens, or anything you find useful. The big thing is do not involve government, avoid any and all interactions with government, and never ask the state for permission. Just go do stuff. Be smart about it. Use wisdom. I want us to kind of pause here and note the picture that goes with today's podcast. It is a picture of the, of the philosopher Voltaire. And it says the following. It is dangerous to be right when government is wrong. And history shown that. And that's what we talked about already today with the concept that we will look at history and say that we're much more free today than we were in the past. And in general, in general, with some exceptions in the world today, um, it's true. Man is more free than he's ever been, especially in the developed world. In the developed world, in the parts of the developed world that are free from the concept of theocracy, we, we are more free than we've ever been. It doesn't mean we're free. It doesn't mean we're free. And it is now less dangerous to be right when the government's wrong. Nobody from our government's going to come to my house, drag me out, and shoot me in the back of the head for the things that I say against the government every day. I am grateful for that freedom. It doesn't mean I'm completely free. It doesn't mean we've gone far enough, and it doesn't mean we should stop, and it damn sure doesn't mean we should be going backwards now. Okay, But it still can be dangerous to be right when the government's wrong. It could be dangerous to be selling raw milk when the government says you don't have the right to do so and you don't do it with enough cleverness and wisdom. Okay, It could be dangerous to let your kids play half a block from your house without direct supervision when they're 8 years old or 10 years old or even 12 years old and you're labeled a free-range parent if you do it without wisdom and understanding of what's going on in the state's mind and how you can structure things and be smarter. And most of the things that, that you actually want to do, that the state says you can't do, can be accomplished with some level of interactive edge if you're smart about it and if you do it in a way that makes sense. So what I added to this, this quote by Voltaire in the caption, it says, again, it is dangerous to be right when the government is wrong, is true words unless... You moderate being right with both wisdom and cleverness. Jack Spirico, right? That's my quote. It is, it is dangerous to be right when the state is wrong, 
unless you moderate being right with both wisdom and cleverness. So in all of these things, you have to be smart. So if you form a group to do something that's technically illegal, you may be able to go do it for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. So much so that if you ever are attacked by the state or its, its surrogates, we'll talk about who the surrogates are in a minute, that it, you become impossible to take down impossible to impede because so many people value you so much you basically have a tombstone moment right there's there's a couple quotes in tombstone the old tombstone with uh kurt russell and uh, uh what's his name val kilmer that i really really like and one is when i think it's sheriff behan shows up to uh, arrest kurt russell which is wyatt herb it says i'm putting you all under arrest and, and and wyatt turns to him and says i don't think i'm going to let you arrest us today And, and that's what you have to have, right? And it may not be that direct, but in the end, there's so much support for what you're doing, you're untouchable. You become virtually untouchable. You become a Ron Finley where the state says, we're going to pass some laws so you can garden this way, Ron, because uh, we've decided, they decide anything. You're tired of looking stupid. You become those, those people in Arizona that start, I can't remember their names ever, they started cutting the curbs. Uh, on the streets, which is totally illegal. You're damaging government property, for God's sakes. Who would build our roads without them? You can't just cut the curb open. My God, what are you doing? So they cut the curbs open, they channel the water, and they make a depression, they put a tree in it, and in the desert they have trees growing up and down the street, so they create this neighborhood forest with no irrigation where there's never been trees growing before. They create little minor economies and things like that going on in there. They have beauty everywhere. The water infiltrates the ground instead of runs away. Everything gets better in the state says, you know what we're going to do? We're gonna, we, we've looked at this, and we're going to mandate that new developments are built this way on purpose. Okay, that was your idea. Whatever you want to believe, man. Whatever you want to believe. Now, I'm not necessarily for them mandating it, but it's better that they mandate that something like that be done than they mandate that it can't be done. And that all got accomplished by people that did what they did so cleverly and so softly and so silently And the actions were silent, but the results that were long-term were loud. And the results were so positive that the action, while even being viewed negative by the state, became impossible to stop. There's another story. I don't remember where it happened, but there was an area that had a big bunch of problems. And it was like a big round circle. And it was like lots of money to put in basically some sort of hard surface They created kind of a roundabout type thing for it, so traffic knew what to do. And some guerrilla artists went out and painted on the street a, a roundabout. And, of course, the police were, oh, God, you can't do this. You can't paint the road this way. And it was either the mayor or the chief or someone like that that said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. If this works and we didn't have to spend any money to do it and it doesn't harm anything, maybe we need to look at doing this elsewhere. Okay, That's the type of thing. When you get up and tell the government, I'm not paying taxes because you can't show me the law that says that I don't have to, and I'm going to teach other people how to do what I'm doing, even if you're right, you end up dying in a cell as an old man like Erwin Schiff. You have to be clever about what you're doing. Think about that as we go forward with this thing, and think about that as you develop your groups to get proactive things done. Eight, be a very basic prepper so that you can look after yourself and your community. Everybody in this audience is probably a basic prepper, or at least are on your way to being one. And I'm not talking about full off-grid zombie apocalypse prepping. 
I'm talking about basic preparedness, a few weeks of extra food on hand, a 90-day emergency cash fund, 72-hour kit for each member of the family, a blackout kit in your pantry for when the power goes off, stuff like that. Perhaps a generator and 60 gallons of stabilized fuel, some form of backup heat for your house like kerosene or a propane heater with enough stored fuel to last a few weeks for those items. To claim you don't need the state, you need to be able to back it up. When the power goes off for a week during a hurricane or an ice storm, you need to be able to look after yourself, not rely on the state you claim not to need. You should be able to step up and help your neighbors get through these minor disasters instead of waiting on the Red Cross or FEMA to show up. If you lose your job, you should be able to go 90 days without while finding a new one and still be okay at the end of those 90 days. And if you really want a job and you look hard for 90 days and they make finding a new job your job, you'll be able to do it. If you set your life up that way, you're an anarchist. Because what you're basically saying is I'm not relying on the system to fix my problems. I'm going to set up resiliency so that my problems are actually inconveniences. And people would ask me, Jack, so does that mean that if you were still employed and you had set stuff up like this and you could actually make it 90 days, uh, would you then not collect unemployment? Absolutely I would collect unemployment. It's my money. I paid for it. They took it from me. There's, there's a piece of your tax dollars that's designed to insure you for unemployment. Well, if you're a real anarchist, you should have private un unemployment. Well, Really? Okay, then don't take those tax dollars for me anymore, and I'll set that up. Oh, you won't let me? Then I have to use that interactive edge that you've created. I have to use that interactive edge that you've created. Now, people would say, well, then, you know, well, how, how can you step up and really... Okay, I don't have state-based unemployment insurance now if my business fails. That's walking the walk. Developing a business that you're the owner of, that you're paid directly by the business as the owner, where you have no wage. I have no wages. I mean, I have what the government considers wages when they tax me on them, but I have no wages. I don't run a payroll for myself every week. I don't have, I don't have unemployment compensation insurance for myself from the state. I don't. I self-insure by being smart about what I do with my money and how I run my business. So that's the way out of it. As an employee, there is no way out. So... You work that interactive edge as best you can. But you should still have all those preparedness items met because unemployment's not going to get you 90 days without losing a lot of what you've worked so hard for. Nine. This is one that almost everybody in this audience is probably doing unless you live in a tiny apartment. Grow some of your own food. And I say this one because people talk about the system as though it's a single thing. But the truth is there are dozens of systems of dependence, like financial, energy, and media systems, just to name a few. One, though, we all deal with daily is our need to eat. Too many people feel anarchism and self-sufficiency are all or nothing, and since they can't do it all, they use it as an excuse to do nothing. By producing your own food, even 10% of it, you begin to break the dependence. If you can't, for some reason, produce much of your own food or even any of it, Uh, due to, say, where you live, like an apartment, you can still learn how to fish, to forage, to hunt, and you can still buy directly from local producers. And they always take cash. I'm just saying. It's still the state's money, but they always take cash. What they do with it after you spend it is their business, not yours. And many of them might be willing to take silver or barter or uh, pick your own operation, might be willing to take, you pick 
more and, and give them the rest the cell has already picked. So, for instance, I know of one place in Oregon where the lady does strawberries, and they have a pick-your-own, and you go in there and you pick a quart of strawberries and you pay so much per quart. But if you go in there and pick, like, 20 quarts of strawberries and give her, like, 12 of them, and you've acted as a picker, she takes those 12 and sells them through retail outlets for people that don't want to do pick-your-own, and you bug her off with your eight. There's always ways to start procuring your food independent of the state. That's what growing your own food is. It's like printing money. It really is. The the uh, the uh, Mitchell and Webb situation, farmer, uh, funny video, uh, I'll put in the show notes today for a good laugh, uh, aside. It, it, it really is like printing your own money. And it leads to other things that are like printing your own money. Taking garbage, turning it into compost, and enriching soil on a piece of property increases the property's value in a way that a tax assessor cannot see. It is therefore like printing money, non-taxable money. Learning how to uh, propagate plants is printing money. It is literally printing money. Someone in our Regen Ag group just posted a picture. They took a Gumi plant, okay, and they wrapped a piece of aluminum foil with some coconut husk and some other stuff around it and kept it moist, and then you peel it off later and there's roots on it. You cut it off and plant it in the ground. Is that printing money? Oh, the plants cost $24.95 in a catalog. How many of them could you make that way? A thousand? Twenty five hundred bucks worth? Even if you don't, it might even be better that you don't sell them. What if you bartered with and planted them everywhere? These methods of producing food and systems that produce food for ourselves are like printing money. When I was a kid, every year we'd get to a certain point where the blueberries were, were really, really ripe, and, and 20 of us would pile in trucks and cars and jeeps, and go up on the mountain and all together pick blueberries. And we would just pick, 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 and pick. We'd pick all day. We'd set up grills and we'd cook food while we picked so that we could be there all day long. The kids would play, people would pick a little bit, then they'd hang out for a little bit, have a beer or two, what have you. And it, we made a day of picking blueberries in the middle of the mountain where no one, no one even knew who really owned it. No one really cared. And at the end of it, we would go through with big trays, and we would dump them in the trays, and we'd start picking out all the green and red ones that would find their way in there, and then we would divide it all up, and each family would take an equal share. That's communism, isn't it? No, it's volunteerism. All right, It's communism as an adjective, not as a system. Everybody came together voluntarily, agreed upon the rules before we started, had a great time, and then parted ways with their portion of equal distribution. It is that socialism is a verb, and that's something we need to learn inside anarchy. That the, 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 the concepts of socialism and communism and capitalism within anarchism should not be overriding systems, because if you say the whole thing is anarcho-capitalism, anarcho-socialism, anarcho-communism, anarcho-blah-blah-blah-ism, okay, whatever, then what you're saying is that's the only way to practice it. That you're going to then have to say, anybody who's going to be in my tent is going to do things my way. Now you're using force and coercion. So you can't have any of those things individually as the overriding system, only components within it. Now, there's many people that are proponents of one that are okay with everybody else doing their own thing, and that's fine. But there's also a lot of people that are proponents of ANCOMs uh, that, that say, well, it can only be our way. Well, the only how are you going to enforce that? We'll make other people do it. Ah, uh, you just violated the NAP, non-aggression principle, so you're not a real anarchist, but by go out. There's no way. 
you can run an anarchy and then tell everybody everywhere they have to do things your way or it's not an anarchy. It's a state. It's a, st a state by any other name. It's still a state. Just saying. So grow some of your own food because that truly takes away power. And it truly is like printing money. And remember I said do business without the state's money. This includes increasing your wealth without using the state's money. You learn how to propagate something like chestnuts. Okay? Not hard. You do it with chestnuts. You literally buy chestnuts to eat, and they're actually seeds, believe it or not. The seed and the nut are the same thing. And you propagate a thousand chestnuts. And you have yourself a little five, ten acre property. And you plant a thousand chestnuts on that property. You don't do it for agricultural purposes. You're not harvesting them every year. You just plant them in a, and you have a climate where they'll grow in. 500 die. 500 die. They get eaten by squirrels. They get eaten by deer. Uh, people, somebody, you have friends over who fall on them playing football. They don't get enough water. They get too much water. Whatever. 500 of them die. 500 chestnuts live. Okay. What's your property worth in 15 years? What's your property worth? How is that tracked? And what if you're planting 20 different species of trees that way on a, on a property, a multi-acreage property? What's your property worth? And how does your county tax assessor that tax you track that? They don't. They don't even know what they're looking at. It's all wooded in. It's unimproved. Low tax bracket. Seriously. Learn to produce food. And, and anything that enhances value. The last one. The most important one. That's why I said for last. Self-educate constantly and do so based on your own desires, goals, and questions. Follow your passion. Turn off the news and ask your own questions. Find your own answers and develop a huge quantity of hard and soft skills. The media and public education systems, from kindergarten through to university, are the state's primary tools of control. They tell you what to think, when to think, how fast or slow to learn. Beyond that, they teach you that your progress is to be judged based on the average results of others rather than your own personal advances. If you really think about that, such thinking is delusional. Today we have a plethora of alternative media, unlimited knowledge on the Internet, and in many ways such information can seem like there's just too much of it. This is why asking your own questions is a major key here. The world is made up of billions of people with billions of goals, dreams, talents, and desires. Most importantly, don't just learn facts and figures. Learn how to do stuff. Learn how to code, produce audio and video, make a friction fire, trap an animal, speak a second language, ride a horse, butcher a deer, make a piece of jewelry, anything that interests you. A skilled and educated society of free thinkers cannot be controlled by tyrants. So there you go. I'm sure many so-called pure, so purist anarchists will complain about this list, saying that it's far too much accepting of the current systems of government and control. No, what it does is it acknowledges them and works around them as best as can be done right now. As an anarchist, I'm bound by the non-aggression principle. It is 100% key to my entire life, being, and morality. In fact, I do not believe in the non-aggression principle because I'm an anarchist. I'm an anarchist because I believe in the principle of non-aggression. This means, unlike every other ideology in the world of politics, I can't ever use force except in pure self-defense. And hence, I can't use force to spread my ideas and my philosophy of anarchism. This is an interesting question that most people never think of when it comes to political thinking. 
People think they can spread, say, republicanism or democracy with persuasion versus force, but this is false. Sure, you can spread it, but what about all the people who do not want to do things your way when your side, quote, wins, whatever that means to you? All it means is the state can now use force to make others comply with the way you think things should be done. Put another way, the state is force. Every law, if enforced via the threat of force in the form of violence, fines, incarceration, etc. This means quite simply every form of politics except anarchy allows for the use of force and coercion to require compliance with the will of the state. Some are worse than others. But all can at some point rely on force. Anarchy can't. Period. Okay, so what's left if you can't use force? How do you spread an idea effectively? Persuading people with words and ideas is highly limited. If I say I have a machine that makes lead into gold, no matter how good of a salesperson I am, before you buy one, you're going to want to see it work, right? There's your answer. The only way to spread an ideology which never allows the use of force except in self-defense is via demonstration that it actually works. In, in my view, we have way too many intellectual anarchists that don't do anything. They range from 20-somethings who dress in black and live in their parents' basements to 40-somethings that say ownership is a myth. And it's because they've accomplished almost nothing in life and they've come to use that as an excuse. These people may be the most vocal and the most visible, but let me tell you, they're not the majority of anarchists. The vast majority of us who are active anarchists just look like everyday Americans. We have jobs or run businesses. We're solid members of our community. We neither worship nor hate all cops. We understand that every person is on a walk and every person must discover the truth for themselves. We do real proactive things and demonstrate daily that it is the very best things that can be done for liberty and are done by individuals and groups which associate voluntarily, not by states. We do things like the 10 I've just talked about, more because we know the fact that we can't have things exactly the way that we would like to is no excuse for not making a difference wherever and whenever we can. We know that success that spreads an idea is far better than force. We know that we will never see a true anarchy of total humanity in our lifetimes. We think seven generations or more into the future. We teach our children and our grandchildren to be moral and ethical. And when we die, we will know we did our part to make the world just a little bit better. As to how big a difference any one of us makes, we don't spend much time worried about that. Again, being an anarchist is about what you do and how you think. It's not about what others do or how they think. It's about freeing yourself of what others feel you should do and doing what you know is best for you and those you love based on re the reality of being fully informed. It is freedom in a world of tyranny. Those of us living this life invite you to join us. We can show you the door. We can even open it for you. But you must walk through it. Unlike other ideologies, we can neither carry you nor push you through. Rest assured, though, the door, it's always open. And if you ever do walk through, please leave it that way. I promise you that unlike many places, no one will ever accuse you of being born in a barn for leaving that door open. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Freddy. Hey, listen, party at the Fed. Already? 20 minutes. Lobby. John Maynard Keynes. Uh, F.A. Hayek. Yeah, yeah. we're opposed. opposed. We oppose each other philosophically. In the same studio. We've been going back and forth for a century. I want to steer markets. I want them set free. There's a boom and bust cycle and good reason to fear it. Play low interest no. rates. It's the animal spirit. John Maynard Keynes wrote the book on modern macro. The man you need when the economy's off track. Depression, recession, now your question's in session. Have a seat and I'll school you in one simple lesson. Boom, 1929, the big crash. We didn't bounce back, economies in the trash. Persistent unemployment, the result of sticky wages. Waiting for recovery, that's outrageous. I had a real plan, any fool can understand. The advice, real simple, boost aggregate demand. C-I-G, all together gets to Y. Keep that total growing, watch the economy fly. We've been going back and forth for a century. I want to steer markets. I want them set free. There's a boom and bust cycle and good reason to fear. Play more interest no. rates. It's the animal spirit. You see, it's all about spending. Hear the register cha-ching. Circular flow. The dough is everything. So if that flow is getting low, doesn't matter the reason. We need more government spending. Now it's stimulus season. So forget about saving. Get it straight out of your head. Like I said, in the long run, we're all dead. Savings is destruction. That's the paradox of thrift. Don't keep money in your pocket or that growth will never lift. Because business is driven by the animal spirits. The bull and the bear. And there's reasons to fear its effects on capital. Investment, income, and growth. That's why the state should fill the gap with stimulus, both the monetary and the fiscal. They're equally correct. Public works, digging ditches, war has the same effect. Even a broken window helps the glass man have some wealth. The multiplier driving higher the economy's health. And if the central bank's interest rate policy tanks, a liquidity trap, that new money stuck in the banks. Deficits could be the cure you've been looking for. Let the spending soar now that you know the score. My general theory's made quite an impression. Revolution. I transformed the econ profession. You know me, modesty. Still, I'm taking a bow. So say it loud and say it proud. We're all Keynesians now. We've been going back and forth for a century. I want to steer markets. I want them set free. There's a boom and bust cycle and good reason to fear it. I made my case, Freddie H. Listen up, can you hear it? I'll begin in broad strokes, just like my friend Keynes. His theory conceals the mechanics to change. That simple equation, too much aggregation. Ignores human action and motivation Yet it continues as a justification For bailouts, payoffs, by polls with machinations You provide them with cover to sell us a free lunch Then all that we're left with is death and a bunch If you're living high on that cheap credit hog Don't look for a cure from the hair of the dog Real savings come first if you want to invest The market coordinates time with interest Your focus on spending is pushing on thread In the long run, my friend, it's your theory that's dead So sorry there, buddy, if that sounds like invective Prepare to get schooled in my Austrian perspective We've been going back and forth for a century I want to steer markets I want them set free There's a boom and bust cycle and good reason to fear it Play low interest rates It's the animal spirit The place you should study isn't the bust It's the boom that should make you feel leery That's the thrust of my theory The capital structure is key Malinvestments wreck the economy The boom gets started with an expansion of credit The Fed sets rates low Are you starting to get it? That new money is confused for real loanable funds But it's just inflation that's driving the ones Who invest in new projects like housing construction The boom plants the seeds for its future destruction The savings aren't real Consumption's up too And the grasping for resources reveals there's too few So the boom turns to bust 
the interest rates rise For the cost of production, price signals were lies The boom was a binge, that's a matter of fact Now it's devalued capital that makes up the slack Whether it's the late 20s or 2005 Booming bad investments seems like they'd thrive You must save to invest, don't use the printing press Or a bus will surely follow, an economy depressed Your so-called stimulus will make things worse Just more of the same, more incentives perverse And that credit crunch ain't a liquidity trap Just a broke banking system, I'm done, that's a wrap We've been going back and forth for a century I want to steer markets, I want them set free There's a boom and bust cycle and good reason to fear it Play more interest rates Nah, it's the animal spirits the ideas of economists and political philosophers, both when they are right and when they are wrong, are more powerful than is commonly understood. Indeed, the world is ruled by little else. Practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influence are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. The curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. They've been going back and forth for a